And I do hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Psalm 115. This morning as we come to the psalm, we're reminded of a question that sometimes gets asked in times of trouble. A question that gets asked when things don't go the way we thought they should go. Think about times of tragedy or suffering, of, of loss or maybe opposition. When life gets hard, sometimes this question gets asked. Where is God? Have you heard someone ask that question before in a time of pain or suffering? Maybe you've had that question and rattling around in your head. Where is God now? I know for some of you, in your family, you are the only one who, who believes in God, or at least the only one who's living like someone who believes in God. And for you and your family, you're known as the Christian. You're the one that when hard times come, you hold out the promises of God. You're the one when they're suffering in the family, you lead the prayer. For some of you, I hope this is most of you, it's your reputation in your place of work or in your school that you're the Christian, right? You're known as the person who knows God, who trusts God, who believes that God is real and powerful and sovereign. I hope you have that reputation in your workplace. That when people think of you, they know that you're a God follower. I hope it's your reputation and our reputation in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And if that's the case, if you in some sphere are known as the Christian, the Bible guy or gal, here's something you should know. People are watching you. And that's not to say they're super interested in everything you do. Don't get too... <laughs> too fixated on that, but, but know this, that when things go up and things go down, when things are good and bad, they're taking note. They notice how you respond as the Christian. And in particular, they're going to see how you respond in times of crisis. When life hits you hard, when suffering comes for you, when tragedy strikes your family, they're going to be curious to see how you handle that. And sometimes I think as people watch Christians suffer, they could ask this question. Where is their God? You understand what I mean? They recognize this is a person who loves God, who believes in God, who trusts God. But now they're suffering unlike anything I've ever seen. Where is God? If anyone should be exempt from suffering, shouldn't it be the one who's in right standing with God? If God is all those things, why would those who know him best have to suffer? If he's real and powerful and sovereign, then where is he? Well, this morning we come to Psalm 115 and we come to a psalm in which the psalmist recognizes that there are those outside of the people of God who are asking this question. The people of God are suffering. Where is their God? Now, in this context, it's not a genuine, that's odd. No, this is a taunting, mocking question. Where's their God now? Shouldn't he be here? If he is all of the things he says he is, show up. 
Where is your God? The reality is, as we come to the psalm, we don't know the actual setting. We don't know the actual setting, but I think we do see as we read that the psalmist is aware that there are other nations seeing the suffering of God's people and they're taunting or mocking. We see that in verse 2. Why do the nations have this opportunity to say, where's your God? And the psalm's not written necessarily to answer that question. But the psalmist is interacting with the reality that there are those who may see the suffering of God's people and have this question. And his desire is for the glory of God. God, there are those who are seeing us, who are seeing our distress, who are seeing our suffering, and they think that you are absent, that you have left us, God, for the sake of your glory. Would you save us? That's the first part of the psalm. And the second part, he wants us and the people of God to be encouraged. There may be times when it seems from an outsider's perspective that God has gone silent. Here's how you need to respond in those times. How should we think when others think God is absent? That's where we're headed. Psalm 115. Let me read it for us. Psalm 115, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make the idols become like them. So do all who trust in those idols. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The things this psalm tells us about God are true. I pray that he'll help us to believe them. Now, if you were part of a certain segment of Christian culture between 2002 and 2000, I don't know, 15, and you heard me read verse 1, you may have had a song that started playing in your head. Maybe you just now realized that Chris Tomlin didn't write the line, not to us, but to your name be the glory. It's not original to Chris. It's the opening line of Psalm 115. Tomlin took the first part of this verse and wrote a song that I like. 
and that we've sang together as a church. It's a song worth singing. And the, and the, the thrust of the song is this. We're living for God. We're serving God. We're sacrificing for him. We've given him our lives, not to us. Not to us be the glory, but to your name be the glory, which is a good prayer. The song's an anthem. And you should listen to it. Don't, don't throw away your Tomlin CD. But here, here's what you have to know is that I spent three days this week trying to get that song out of my head because I didn't find it helpful for this song. See, that song, like I said, it's an anthem. We sing it joyfully. God, you have given us the privilege of serving you. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. But that's not what's going on here. So I've spent time with the psalm. I've recognized that these words are actually a prayer of pleading. What we have here is the psalmist and the people of God in suffering. And the psalmist prays rightly. God, we need your salvation. Would you come and would you save us, not for, not for our sake, not for our glory, but for the glory of your name. The nations are saying, where is their God? God, for your glory. Would you come? Would you save us? Sing that song. Give God the glory for all that happens. But for now, put that song out of your mind because I think we have a different flavor here. I've mentioned already verse 2 a couple of times. Why should the nations, I think we could insert, have the opportunity to say, where is their God? We have this question that implies absence. The people of God are in trouble. God is not there to help. Where is their God? And it's a question that if you've read the scriptures, you may recognize this isn't the only time that a writer of scripture has this concern about the reputation of God. It comes up a few times in the Psalms as well as in some other places. I think particularly of Moses, when God's about to judge his people because they built a golden calf, and Moses' prayer is, God, for the sake of your name, would you not wipe us out? Another example, Psalm 42, verse 3. These are the kind of verses I think about whenever I heard Stephen um, praying Thanking God for the Psalms. The psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, Where is your God? What a picture. All that I've had to eat yesterday and today are just, just my tears. And on top of that, everyone who's around me is pointing at me saying, Where's your God? Has he left? Is he absent? Did he forget about you? Psalm 42, verse 10, just later in that same psalm. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Let me give you one more example. This one's from outside the psalms. And I just want you to understand the nature of this question. Because it's always asked the same way throughout the scriptures. Joel chapter 2. God's pronouncing judgments. There's going to be a day judgment's going to come. And so Joel prays to God and he says this in Joel 2.17. Between the vestibule and the altar, which is this place of prayer, 
Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So you see this theme. People have got a suffering. They're in a situation that doesn't look like blessing. And the writers of Scripture, inspired by God, are saying, God, for the sake of your name, would you change the situation because you're giving them reason to, to doubt you? It's what we see here in our psalm. Why should the nation say, where is their God? I think it's with that in mind that we go back and read verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but give your name glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Thank you, Chris Tomlin, for your song. But can you hear the verse differently now? God, they're looking at us and, and they don't see you. Not to us, O Lord, but for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your faithfulness, for the sake of your love, for the sake of your reputation. Would you show that your love never fails by saving your people? Would you show that you're always faithful by delivering us from trouble? Not for our sake, but for the sake of your name. It's this prayer for the vindication of God's name. And just as we think about that, I, I, I can't help but think, what motivates our prayers in times of suffering and in times of trouble? Now, if we read through the scriptures, let's be fair, there's lots of examples of praying for God to save us, to give us comfort and to rescue us. Pray that prayer. But I think we also see an instructive example here that too often our eyes get fixated on our comfort and we don't even have a consideration, a category for the fact that perhaps our suffering would cause others to doubt the goodness of God. So here's the prayer. God, for the sake of your name, would you save us? For the sake of your name, would you deliver us? We see this concern for God's name to be praised. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. You remember how Jesus prayed? Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me give you another example of this kind of prayer. This one's from Psalm 79, starting in verse 8. The psalmist prays, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Hear the request there. Forgive us. Save us. Deliver us. Help us, O God of our salvation. Why? For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? So we see that this is now the fourth example we've had of this very thing. What we see is a deep concern for the reputation of God. As the people of God suffer, the desire is God, save us, not for us, but for you, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your reputation, which you save your people. 
And then the psalmist kind of seems to shift his attention, and he wants to encourage the people of God. And I think this is how we should interpret the rest of the psalm. How should we respond? How should we live when the nations have an opportunity to say, where is their God? Does that make sense? They're asking this question. I see the people of God suffering. I see their distress. I don't understand where their God is. How should we be living? I think the psalm answers that question for us. In verse 3, wow. Consider this. The question of verse 2 is, where is their God? And the psalmist says this right out of the gate. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's a verse you should underline, highlight, memorize, and cherish. If you've ever read the Puritans, you know what I'm talking about when I say the Puritans? These guys in the 1500s, they wrote a lot of good books. And, but most of those books, on the first page, you've got a verse, and then you've got 200 pages that talk about that verse. They just wring it dry. This is one of those verses I think you could take and just write for days. Our God is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. The question is, where is he? Is he real? Does he care? And maybe you've asked that question. Does God actually care about my situation? Where is God when I need him? And this verse, in answer to that question, may seem simplistic and it may even seem cold. But I want to propose that it should be a truth of great comfort. Our God has a place. He is real. He's in the heavens. And he's not restricted. He's not limited. He does all that he pleases. The question is, I, I can't see him. Is he doing anything? Is he, is he real? And the psalmist wants us to know for sure, yes, our God is real. He has a place. He's in the heavens, which is not to suggest he's distant and uncaring. No, it's to say he's in a place above all. He sees all. He knows all. So your situation has not escaped his notice. He's in the heavens. He's reigning. He's ruling. He knows. He sees. Where is your God? Oh, our God, he's in a place of power and authority. He knows all, he sees all, and he does all that he pleases. This week I was reading an article by by John Piper dealing with this particular question, where is God in times of suffering? He made this statement that made me stop and, and think and worship He said, God is in the same place when you're suffering as he was when he gave you thousands of good days and nights. Where is God in my pain? Oh, he's in the same place he was whenever he was giving you those good days. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases according to his will. Romans tells us for his glory and for our good. But if we just take this phrase, God does whatever he wants, That's a phrase that could be used as a weapon, couldn't it? If God does all that he pleases and they're still suffering, what does that say about God? If God does all that he pleases and people are still hurting, what does that say about God? Does he take pleasure in our suffering? Does he find satisfaction in our pain? Is this really what pleases him? 
I understand the questions, but I think they missed the point of the verse because this verse lives in a book that tells us that God is good and just and faithful and loving and that all things are for his glory and our good. So when we as Christians read this verse, he does whatever we please. He pleases, we should say, praise God. He can do whatever he wants and he does. And I know that he's good. And I know that he loves me. And I know that he's faithful. And I know that he will never let me go. So even when life comes and crashes down around me, I can say, my God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's still in control. He's still good. He's still loving. He's still faithful. And that should be a truth that helps you get out of bed even on your worst days. All things are being worked according to his plan. Your situation at work is not an accident. Your relationship with your family is not a mistake. It's not outside of God's watchful care. And the Bible affirms this truth over and over that God is God and God acts as God. Listen to what Isaiah 46 verse 8 says. God speaking, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. I love that. All right, sinners, listen up. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all all my purpose. And I love the phrase from a song, he can't plan the end and not plan the means. If he knows the end, he's not overlooked today. Psalm 135, if you want to read Psalm 135 this afternoon, you'll find that it's a lot like Psalm 115. When we come to it, I probably won't preach it too soon because there's a lot of mirror images between the two Psalms. One verse in particular, Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. That's a truth that we should hold deep within our souls. God is real. He's in his place. He's over all and governs all. He's not limited by anything, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul says in Ephesians 1. What we see in Isaiah 46 and in Psalm 135 and in Psalm 115 is that while some may ask the question, where is God? He is not absent nor inattentive. He is over all and governs all. Which is very different, by the way, from the gods of the nations that we're asking the question. Four to seven, beautifully sarcastic, sanctified sarcasm. They ask, where is your God? Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse four, their idols, their gods are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Their idols, they have mouths, but they can't talk. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And they can't even make a sound in their throat. 
we know that during this time, idol worship was very common. So there was this erection of wood and or metal idols that people that were represented gods or in fact served as gods. And people would bow to them and, and worship them. And I hope you see the contrast that the psalmist is making. Where's your God? Oh, he's in the heavens overall, sees all, knows all, does whatever he pleases. Your idols? Well, they're made out of things that our God created. By people that our God created. It's quite a contrast. He's pointing out their inability. They have no power. They can't do anything. They seem to have all the right components. Mouth, eyes, ears, nose, hands, feet. But they can't talk, see, hear, smell, feel, or walk. He's pointing out they're lifeless, they're impotent. And yet, they're being worshipped. And this is something that gets a lot of attention um, over and over in the prophets. Probably my favorite one. Um, I remember a few of us, we walked through this in Isaiah um, last year. Um, Isaiah 44, just listen to this. this. It's God speaking, talking about idols, and he says this. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He goes back. He says he cuts down cedars, trees. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of that tree and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of that tree he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats his meat. He roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of that tree he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. If you think the Bible is stale or boring, you're not paying attention. Here we have God absolutely destroying the idea of idols. He points out the absurdities. It's made out of the same thing that you burn to heat your house. It's made out of the same thing that you burn to cook your food. With one part you cook, with one part you heat, and with the other part you worship? It seems illogical. It seems absurd. And yet, I'm not serving you well if I don't remind you that you have been guilty of this. We all do it. We find created things, common things, and make them objects of our worship. How much time have you spent fantasizing, perusing Instagram, bookmarking pictures of that perfect home? Maybe, maybe you're not going to build that home, but I can take my home and I can make it look like that home. And we invest time and energy, and I'm glad for beautiful homes. I think we should take the things that God has given us and make beautiful things. But do you see how quickly we can slip into the worship of created things? 
Because what we say is, if I have that, then there's joy. If I have that, then there's satisfaction. If I have that perfect home, that comfortable home, then I can be at peace. Oh, friends, there's no home so comfortable that can serve as your God. Maybe for you or me, it's that perfect yard. If it looks good, if it's healthy. Maybe you've given up on the home front, but your wardrobe, if I can have those clothes, if I can wear that style. And so we give our lives to pursuing those things. Not considering that we've made created things the objects of our worship. And we trust them for our joy. Maybe for you it's not physical things. Maybe for you it's your work and your career. Maybe for you it's status or education. Your ability to think well. Maybe it's a relationship. All of these are things that we can fall prey to at times. We can worship them other than God. We can give our praises to things that are temporary and fleeting. We can put our trust and our hope in things that will never last and never satisfy. Now take that, now that you all hopefully have identified some way in which you could be guilty, and look at verse 8. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Which is to say, they make us lifeless and useless. Because we've given our lives to things that wither and fade. Worshiping things other than the true God will never bring us hope or satisfaction or joy. And I will say again, we're going to talk about this actually at the end. God gives heaven and earth to us to enjoy and to cherish and to find satisfaction in. So make a comfortable home and work hard to the glory of God. But no, this is not where your joy is found. Our God, the only object of our worship, is in the heavens. May he be the one that we worship. When we're going through suffering, we can be tempted to think of God as distant or absent or even neglectful. And in our sin, we can set our eyes on other things that may seem to bring more immediate satisfaction or joy. The psalmist wants to reset our perspective. We can trust the God who's on his throne. He does as he pleases. And if we trust him, we will never be disappointed. Trust in the Lord. That's the next thing. How do we live when there are those saying their God has forgotten. First, we need to remember who God is. Second, we need to remember the uselessness of idols. Third, we should have hearts set to trust God, knowing that he is able. Verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. I'll just say as a side note, I think this was probably used as a call and response. So you see this change in, from the first person to the third person. It's probably a, a call and response thing. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He's talking to the people of God, calling them to trust the Lord. And don't 
disconnect this from the previous section. It's not a call to trust something abstract or nonspecific. It's a call to trust the one who is in the heavens who does all that he pleases. It's a call to trust the one who's living and active in contrast to idols. It's a call to trust in the Lord and Yahweh. Again, it seems that people are in a time of trouble and suffering. They may be looking for help, looking for answers. The other nations are questioning the presence and the care of God. And here's the call. They are mocking and taunting and suggesting that God doesn't exist. Here's what you need to do. Trust the Lord. Trust him. And we see the repetition. House of Israel, trust him. House of Aaron, trust him. You who fear the Lord, trust him. Israel, people of God, house of Aaron, the family line through which the priest came. So he's talking to all the people and then to the clergy and then to all who fear the Lord, which includes those first two categories, but may also include Gentile converts, others who have come in. All you who follow God, trust him. The repetition is purposeful and helpful, isn't it? If we just had one line that said, trust God, we could go past it perhaps too quickly, but he leaves no question about how he wants us to respond. Trust the Lord. He is their help and their shield, which means he can do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He can protect them against anything that would harm them. David says in Psalm 28, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Our help and our shield. Think about the encouragement that's been given up to this point. How do we respond when others may perceive the absence of God? We we can recognize who God is. He's in the heavens. He does all he pleases. We can trust him. Idols will never satisfy. He is our help. He is our shield. And then fourth, we should be confident in God's care for his people. So first he says, Israel, Aaron, fears of God, trust him. And then he says this, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. Listen to that again. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. Who? The God who's in the heavens, who does all that he pleases. He's remembered us. And he will bless us. Maybe another verse worth underlining, highlighting, memorizing, and cherishing. Right alongside the other one. Not only is God sovereign and powerful, but he remembers his people. He comes close to those who care for him. Excuse me, he comes close to those for whom he cares. He goes on. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. The same groups again, right? Trust him, trust him, trust him. He will bless you. He will bless you. He will bless you. How can we know that? How could the psalmist say, so assuredly, the Lord will bless you? He could say this with confidence because 
God had made promises to Abraham. Through you will all the nations be blessed. You will be blessed and you will be a blessing. See, the psalmist believed the word of God. He believed that the promises of God were true. So he says, trust the Lord. He has said he will bless us, so he will. The problem is, far too often we forget God's promises. Life hits us hard, things get difficult. We lose sight of the fact that he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We forget that he has said, I will work all things together for good for those who love me and are called according to his promise or purpose. The psalmist tells the people of Israel, God will bless you. And yet how much more confidently can we say the same? After all, we live this side of the cross, this side of the coming of Christ. Think how much more proof we have of the surety of the blessing of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and that through him we've been promised every spiritual blessing. You remember Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11? In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose. Listen to this. See if this doesn't sound like Psalm 115. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you understand what I'm saying? When the psalmist says, he will bless you, he will bless you, he will bless you, we should say, I know that he will. Because Christ came and died and rose again, and we have the guarantee of the Spirit of God. So we know that no matter what else happens in this life, we are blessed in Christ. And on the worst days, we can trust him. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. I'm glad he said that. I certainly feel like I'm in the small category. And I'm glad the blessings aren't reserved for the great. He proclaims this blessing and then he prays a prayer of blessing. Verse 14. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. We talked about this a week or two ago. Old covenant, God's giving his people land. He's showing his greatness through the blessings that he gives them, which is why the psalmist is so concerned about those who would, that he appears absent. Now the psalmist prays this blessing over the people. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Trust him. He will bless you. And God, I pray he would bless you all the more. May you be blessed by the Lord. Well, can he? Can he bless us? Well, verse 15 said, it's the one who made heaven and earth. The blessing comes from the one who made all things, the creator God, the sovereign Lord. He made it all and he's able to do with it as he pleases. In fact, look at verse 16. I think 16 gives us an example of part of the blessing. Look at it again. The heavens are the Lord's, 
but the earth he has given to the children of man. I think it's a practical example of one way that he has blessed us. He's given us the earth to enjoy and to steward. He's given us the earth with all of its beauty, all of its majesty, all the wonders we see, all the food we enjoy, all the good things we have in this life are from his hand. And he's given them to us to steward, to enjoy. May God bless you, the one who made heaven and earth and has already blessed you because you saw the sunrise this morning and you felt the cool breeze on your face and you hugged someone you loved and you ate an egg with cheese. It was awesome. He's given us the earth, a reminder of his goodness, of his blessing. In church, there's more to come. This is common grace. There's so much more to come for us in Christ. I wonder if you ever think, man, I don't know about heaven because I really like it here. You know, we can trust that the God who made this world that we would love so much has made so much more for us to enjoy that it'll be better and deeper and fuller and richer. But I think I should stop here for a second because our 80 minutes are coming up on us. No. We should stop here for a second because I could say all these things and we could pray and say amen and everyone in this room could walk out and say, God is good, he's gonna bless me. And, and what I, I want to be really clear about is that this psalm is written for the people of God. And we're not all that by default. See, the Bible says that when we're born, we're all born sinners, enemies, rebels of God. And that you and your children and those you love were all born as objects of God's wrath. Yet... God, in his love and mercy, chose to make a way of salvation, a way for sinful man to be reconciled to him. This is how he did it. He sent his son, Jesus, to come and to live a life that you couldn't live. He lived the perfect life, born without sin, lived without sin, and then stood and took punishment that he didn't deserve so that all who believe in him can be spared that judgment. This is the good news, that you, sinful man, can be reconciled to God. And this is the gospel, that all who repent of their sins and trust in him and the work that he's done will be saved and forgiven and then become children of God, for whom Psalms like Psalm 115 are true. So if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins or trusted the work of Jesus, I need you to know Psalm 115 isn't for you yet. Oh, but it could be. You can be thankful to receive the common grace of the earth and all that is in it, but there's so much more still to come. And that's available for those who will repent and believe. And if you've not done this today, it could be the day. Go back to the question that was at the start, where is their God? The psalmist's answer is, the God of those who are his, 
that God, he's in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. He's not like idols that are lifeless and dead. He can be trusted. He is our help and our shield, the one who promises to bless his people. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And he is worthy of our praise. And if you've been saved by him, you know this to be true. Psalm 115 verse 17 says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Not all can praise him. But we, those who are his, those who are his children who have been blessed by him, We should. We should bless the Lord now and forever. If you understand who he is and that you can trust him, you should be eager to say along with the psalmist, I will bless the Lord today and tomorrow and forever. As a church, it is my hope that what is said about God in this psalm would grip our hearts such that we could not help but praise. The psalm should give us a glimpse of his presence, his power, his trustworthiness, his blessings. And we should also remember that we live in these things in view of a watching world. Maybe you're the Christian in your home or the Christian in your workplace. You have an opportunity to show them that God is not absent. He is not distant. He is overall, sees all, and he calls people to himself and gives us blessing upon blessing. If you're in a season where you're tempted to think that God is distant, friend, hear this. He's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is overall, and he will bless you. So trust him. My hope is that we believe these things, that we fix our hope on him, and we'll be led to praise him with our lips, with our lives, from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord.